This is Richie Wexler. I'm very excited to present this week's episode of The Dead and Milkman. We're doing this in two parts. Um, this first week is Joe and Rodney. Um, I first heard of The Milkman. I was 17. Uh, we're talking about 77, uh, 87. Um, driving in my car. Somebody made me a mixtape and it had on Bitch and Camaro. And I put that song on. And I was like, this is this is the most fucked up, amazing thing I've ever heard. And also, they're, they go to my shore. <laughs> something about something about they, they were both going to the same shore made me feel like, oh, I'm cool. I, I go to the same shore as these, these, this weird, crazy punk band that I don't understand yet. And it just changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, I also want to th- introduce uh, and thank John Ross Bowie. Uh, I, in a weird circumstance, I was interviewing John the week before... Um, this episode and John has a band called Egghead and Egghead performed years and years ago and Egghead was essentially influenced very deeply by the Dead Milkmen and John wound up is is like a Dead Milkman fucking scholar so I want to thank him for all his energy and time he put in this he it was a pleasure to do this with John and he just has the best fucking questions so enjoy next week we put the episode out with Dan Drew and Dean uh, and please please enjoy and if you are in the Philly area and you hear this t- tonight or tomorrow, they are playing at a uh, cemetery, Laurel Hill, at 7.30, which is in Philadelphia, and there's probably some tickets left. It's a benefit for the for the cemetery. Please check that shit out. I also want to take this time to plug their new album. It came out on June 9th called Quaker City Quiet Pills. Um, half the money that comes from that album going out benefits an organization called Rock to the Future that helps uh, teens learn how to play rock music and music. Uh, you can find information out on deadmilkman.com. Looks like you can get digital files, and there's a there was a release of 500 red vinyl uh, albums. I don't know if those are available or not, but please check in uh, on their website and enjoy. It's a, it's a really good album. I've listened to it. It's really great. I'm actually in the audience for Chaos Live. Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> um, that it's a great set, and I remember contractual obligation live. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. I wasn't going to start here, but there are songs that have to be taken off of that album because they were on a different label or something. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Apparently, we owed the label because the label was we'd had a hit. And the label thought, oh, they'll have other hits. <laughs> that was not in my business plan. <laughs> um, and so they had given us, if you have a hit, then they have to give you to make the next record a certain percentage of the sales from the last record. And right. That goes, that goes into the new one. And they pumped that money in and lo and behold, never got it back. So I think that was kind of a settlement with them saying, OK, we'll do this this live album. And about that time, I was like looking at the whole music industry going, I got to get out of this. I got to go. I'm selling like fake insurance to old people. Somehow it's <laughs> being in the music industry. So I was, yeah, I was like, I didn't know that thing was coming out. I saw like, like a, a CD or something. I'm like what the hell? Is Seriously? Yeah. I, I think I, I think I was really not, not all that, that interested in it. I mean, you could tell, you know, it's kind of a slapdash 
thing. So yeah, it's it's a fun set though, and it's also it's also kind of a neat sort of um, period piece because um, oh god, I'm blanking on his name. The the politician. Who, oh, that was Stephen Friend. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Friend, um, yes, and and there's re- repeated references. And I, I'm not from Philly, but I have a buddy from Yardley. He hit me to the show. We went to go see it, and I was like, "Who the fuck is this Stephen Friend they're talking about? Who is this Antichrist that that this guy's raging about?" Because I was not as familiar, you know, pre-social media. I'm not as familiar with the uh, uh, the lesser lights of Pennsylvania politics. Yeah, he, um, a lot of his rhetoric is insane. You know, women who get raped can't get pregnant and stuff. That was just picked up recently again by right wing extremists. No, it sounds yeah. like he's kind of the uh, the velvet underground to the modern rights punk rock. Like he's like sort of the uh, the patient zero. A lot of the shit. They, they, that has yeah, they come tested down the- a lot of this. He was our first politician that we took down. And then we were on a roll for a while. Uh, we got Rick Santorum. We were yep. just we were knocking him off left and right. We were feeling really, really good about ourselves. Uh, we went down to. Uh, um, oh, now I'm forgetting the name of the gentleman. And he lost uh, the election. Uh, Judge Roy Moore. Judge Roy Moore. Yeah, that's it. Uh, we were down in Alabama doing songs about <laughs> Judge Roy Moore. And, just, you know, uh, and Birmingham's actually, it was a cool club in Birmingham. And uh, it got picked up and they put our, our you know, improvised lyrics on, on the thing. But yeah, we were on a roll there. I, I, I want to make one more interruption. I want to connect you with, so John has a band called Egghead, which was very heavily influenced I don't by the Den Milkman. That's another place of Now I'm blushing. We, the last time we played the East Coast, we played the insubordination fest and if you look at the poster a few names and in a smaller font below yours you'll find egghead <laughs> in that 2009 uh festival thing oh okay that's probably one of the, i hate festivals depressing that's why i'm in a cranky mood because the other guys just signed off on to some sort of god-awful like 80s nostalgia fest and i'm like yeah uh, it's not, lower the it's, value of the band boys it's not a cruise is it no, 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 no. Although I have friends, I have friends that do the goth cruise, and the goth cruise they say is a lot of fun because it's it's like <laughs> stop, wait, stop everything, stop everything. The entire premise, the entire premise, goth cruise. Yeah, but the goth cruise is like you get to see like ego likeness, you used to get to see Velvet uh, as a Christ, and and you're on a cruise. Like I would do, I would go to that, and apparently because it's not a whole ship filled with goths. <laughs> oh wow! We put them in the basement. Yeah, I, down so there. it's like I guess they only come out at night or something. I don't know. I've, I've always a lot of my friends have done it, and I've always kind of wanted to see it. And then I'm sure there's specific. There's probably like a Star Trek cruise or something. Somebody was I was hearing somebody who had take partaken in a Star Trek murder mystery weekend. Uh, which was apparently put together by people who'd never seen Star Trek. And I was like, oh, I would kill to have been there for that. What are some other weird shows you've been asked, things you've been asked to do that are just like, what the fuck? Uh, a, a fashion, <laughs> like rock and fashion, and Duran Duran was on the bill. Uh-huh. And uh-huh, Carter sure. the Unstoppable Sex Machine. Sure. And they filled Carter the Unstoppable Sex. This is back when I would drink at shows, which I or before shows and stuff, which I don't do anymore. And I don't even really drink after I've got one next day. But um we uh, um we did that show and there Carter had a whole bunch of beer in their dressing room. And so um we wound up getting hammered. And then all I remember, I almost got arrested. It was like it was like a circus. So you would play and there were like acrobats above you. It was in San Francisco. We flew out for it. And then um I was downstairs running, roaming around because I had always booze set up. And one said Dr. Modern Rock. And there was a, a big bowl of condoms. And I thought, <laughs> finally, 
something I could do, something I may be an expert in. So I sat down and uh, I was Dr. Modern Rock and I was handing out condoms and having a good time. And then the uh, um, security came and I, I would tell you, I was very, very, very drunk. Um, and security came and they got a hold of me and they were threatening to uh, not only remove me, which I thought would be interesting because we, we played, but um, to not only to remove me, but to um, charge me with impersonating a medical doctor. Wow. <laughs> like, you're telling me there's an actual man whose name is Dr. Modern Rock. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I, that was the, that was one of the weird ones. We once played, uh, um, oh, this was a nightmare. We played the National Guard Armory where Dan Quayle served. Um, I urinated in a trash can during that. <laughs> it was, it turned out it was just uh, you know, a bunch of like some frat or something and the, and the affiliated sorority um, they had heard, I guess, punk rock girl thought, oh, these guys will be fun. And we, uh, I was just miserable. And there was a, a trash can. And again, I, I think I've been hitting the booze. And I said, pull the trash can over and just whizzed in it. So I whizzed in the trash can at the National Guard Armory where Dan Quayle served. I, I'm interested uh, in, in in the kind of comedy you grew up on because oh. I, I held you guys up, you in particular, as like the gold standard of stage banter. You know, it was the it was you guys, and then everyone else was a distant second. So, what was the kind of what was the comedy you grew up listening to? Well, first, I want to say I only started doing the stage banter thing because everything used to break back in the day. Sure, like <laughs> a symbol, and it would just you know break, or or Joe's amp would always die, so you had to kill time. Yeah, that that's absolutely all punks though. You managed to distinguish yourself and got good at it. Well, you have to. I well, first of all, I was a political science major. And, okay. And what they did was they would take you would have to talk for 20 minutes on any subject. You couldn't oh. you couldn't be like a deer in the headlights. So right. they throw something out at you and you respected to kind of know a little bit about everything and be able to talk about it and, and do that. And actually, uh, at the same time, I was taking a speech class, which did the same sort of thing. If you throw a topic at me, I can usually get about 20 minutes out of it, probably more now that I'm older. But the uh, what comedy I grew up on, my parents, uh, their original thing was a guy by the name of Ernie Kovacs. Yeah, and, and PBS started running old things of Ernie. And Ernie, you talk about drinking at a show. Ernie was drunk on air. You could tell he was drunk. And and it was just so weird. It was just so odd. And then also, um, when I was super young, PBS had started showing Monty Python. Yes. And my, my mom loved it. And one of my favorite memories is my mom talking about she would watch it with us. And there was this woman she was telling, and, and this woman was like, I won't let my children watch that show. And my mom said, well, yeah, but you're the kind of person they're making fun of. And the woman was ah. like, right, I am. And I'm just sitting there just like, you know, I'm I'm soaking all this in as a kid. So I, I loved all that. I loved Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Nice. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, you know, my dad would work. My dad was a steel worker. And sometimes he would work a, a late shift He would because they would move them all around. And so he'd be coming home at night. So we would stay up with my mom on like the you know Friday night or whatever, watch Mary, Mary, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, wait for my dad to come home. Mary Hartman, for, for our younger listeners, Mary Hartman, Mary <laughs> Hartman was like a deconstructed sitcom starring Louise Lasser in the 70s. You're speaking so so fondly of your parents, which you don't hear a lot of punks do. Um, am I crazy or did were your parents interviewed by Maximum Rock and Roll? At yes, one they point? were. Okay. They were indeed interviewed by Maximum Rock and Roll. I forgot about that. They were at a I, show. I did not. Yeah. And somebody was there, and they they decided to to interview my parents. I think the photo used for that was really weird. They looked like this sort of normal, you know, suburban couple. But I thought that was good. I thought they did a a good job with the interview, and I'm 
I'm sure they enjoyed the heck out of that. So. Well, it was such a it was such a neat uh, way to yeah. You know, what I loved about the Milkmen is that they were both in and outside of punk. You know, in on so many ways, they were. You know, you guys would would critique the scene itself. Um, you would you would slow things down and get kind of pretty occasionally. Yes, I said it. Also, you didn't see a lot of punk. I'm glad my parents. My parents. I never heard really anything. I don't want to say anything supportive, but my father, you know, I, I wasn't athletic or anything. And when we did our first show that, that you could went out on the radio, uh, my parents, I think, drove up to a top of a hill or something so they could hear it, uh, so they could get the reception. And, my, you know, my mom was like, oh, we heard your show last night. Your father has something he wants to say to you. And I thought I was going to get chewed out, you know. And my dad was like, son, I'm really proud of you. That was really good. And I was just like, whoa. So they, yeah. So that was that was a that was kind of a first for me. Plus, I've been a real screw up as a kid. Normally, it was just the police showing up at the house. <laughs> <laughs> I want to chime in for one second. I don't mean to interrupt. You. But what I want to get turn talking about your music and one thing you were just talking about um, was bringing up the song "Big Sleazy." Because in that song, you pretty much anger every and every. I'm like, I'm when I'm doing research, I'm questioning. I'm like, are these guys trying to not? Are they trying not to be famous? Because I'm like, you just cut you. Great That's about the that one is, where they're they're cursing out the local stations. Yeah, yeah. I still do that today. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's funny. I I I don't. I'm probably, I'm not gonna cut this out, but I fucking hate XBN for so many reasons. Oh, although I, it's better than ninety percent of the shit out there. I, I I it made me miss the old like rock stations we had here because at least they weren't pretending to be you know and 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 they didn't make my rent go up. But you wrote that in in nineteen ninety. I was reflecting on that in like early two thousand. What where does that come in? Like I'm just curious in terms of I'm gonna say the comedy, but that must be a bit of a joke to make make a song about like fuck you every, every radio station in Philadelphia. No, no, you have a you have a um if you're going to pretend to be artistic, uh and and I'm I'm a guy who actually turned down money, uh was offered. I, I have my own radio show. I do it for free. It costs me, I have to buy to play like 30 songs, I buy a song a day. I usually buy more than that. So I'm spending a, a dollar a day. You know, it winds up about $400 a year of my own cash to hear music. Um, and that's fine with me. I do it that way because if I went to work for another station um, and actually get paid, there's a lot of rules. And when you meet with them, they say stuff like, and you can play crazy outlandish stuff like Pixies. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, can I? Oh, I won't be led away in handcuffs for playing the Pixies. Well, that's good to know. So it's I think you have a, um, either one. Don't don't pretend. Don't pretend yeah. you've got this dangerous sort of like, you know, like underground. Like and and I gotta be careful here because I think we have a band member who actually loves XBN. But um the uh, um I get really bothered by the fact that this stuff is sold as being indie. You know, I would say it's indie short yeah, for indistinguishable from everything else. Yeah. I mean, I listen to a lot of stuff that is indie, like the new Harsh R album is indie, or a band like the the number H. Is is what you would call indie, but it, it it wouldn't fall into their description of indie. You know, it it, it to me is independent. It's weird. It's stuff that the record labels wouldn't touch. Whereas something like you know Vampire Weekend that that was made for movie soundtracks and you know and and if your kids are into that stuff, you're probably okay. And a lot of the it's generational. It's like mom and dad like LCD sound system and so yeah. junior. I want I want to pass it off to Johnny, but I want to ask one more thing. One thing I heard. In Tiny Town, I was like, this could this sounds like and could have been the lead song for South Park. Has anyone ever else made that connection with you guys in South Park? And like I think like the music I, I've, never, I've never had any any 
contact with the people from South Park. No, I, just no, just, I, I don't think okay. I, don't, I think growing up out in Colorado or wherever they the only people I've ever met that really, you know, I was honored with Tim and Eric. Um, oh, sure. We, we share sure. a lot of a lot of DNA with Tim, Tim and Eric. And we were watching. That makes sense. Yeah, the band was watching Billion Dollar Movie. We're like, this is probably made for four people on the planet, and it's us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of theirs. I like that what I call Philadelphia humor, where there's oh, there's no like snare hit at the end of the joke, and it's so open. And sometimes it's it's beaten repeatedly, and that's what's funny about it. Like the fact the repetition yeah. of it, it becomes as because if you repeat something, it's like a mantra. It loses all meaning if you say the same word over and over again and that to me is uh, um sort of when when that sort of stuff is at its best and they do that so well i want to talk about your fans for a moment I, i'm just remembering i didn't have this written down but who was the who was the detroit tigers oh player? that is i've got right hang on yeah i've got a baseball Jim whale wander do i have the card he was with the detroit tigers that's right um, okay and he was and so we got to we got to meet jim and and jim I can't tell it in the car, but Jim looks a lot like like David Bowie, which is super cool, and and was was very popular with the ladies. Uh, and so, <laughs> and he also lived in an apartment that he covered all of the the um, windows with tinfoil so the light couldn't get in. <laughs> he was he was fun, and uh, he would and he was a good ball player. He, he was a fairly decent hitter, pretty good fielder, uh, and we got to meet uh, go down and drink from Tiger Stadium um, water fountain and meet Sparky Anderson. So that was, uh, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. It was, he, he blurbed the album. He blurbed, I yeah. want to say Beelzebubba. Um, and, and it was such a like, oh, here's this baseball. Here's this fucking literal jock who likes these guys who make music for people who are not traditionally jocks. They, they're, they, you know, it was, it was a lifetime of listening to these guys because they were talking directly to me. And then suddenly there's this not just an athlete, but an MLB athlete. Did, did I read correctly that he got some blowback for that? I don't think he got blowback from okay. that. I mean, it's just, a, it just, you know, people probably weren't expecting it. So, you know, I always, uh, um, I always get, if, if it's something I really like, something like that where it's out of left field, or um, if it's something, I'm a big Dana Gould fan. And he, um, he has a show and, and called. And he, you, by the way, he, he's a huge fan of you guys as well. Oh, we I talk, yeah, I, I, Dana, I, Dana and I talk about you guys a lot. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I, I, I was watching, I'm uh, I was a huge fan of his show, um, uh, Hanging with Dr. Z, which again, is, is a sort of humor where you're like, saying like, who else? Because I, when I was a kid, stuff like the Merv Griffin show would be on. And it's such a great parody of that. It's such a great parody of Hollywood and everything. And he mentioned the milkmen on there. And I was I was watching, I would watch like you know every week. So I I would and we got mentioned on Mystery Science Theater a few thousand. That's the kind of makes it, you know. What um if we're on this topic, what are some things, what are some of the bigger people you got to meet or interact with that got exciting to you? I I first of all, my, my general rule is I don't know anybody who could be considered famous. Um but except that I consider everybody I know to be famous, which is pretty weird because I will be talking about like, you know, the, the people who have the um the Asian fusion food restaurant as if everybody knows who they are. <laughs> I think I think that's the way every because in my life they're super important. Um the uh, um like did our our road manager and sound guy, Dan Matt, um, he um road manages for uh, a lot of famous bands and he was road managing for the monkeys. And 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 he was uh, now Peter unfortunately was sick. It was right before Peter died. But Mike and Mickey were out on tour, and he was like, and it turns out that that Mike and I have a mutual friend, a guy by the name of Cowboy Keith, who is a a strange visitor to our world. And Cowboy Keith and I have worked on a pilot for a show together uh, that didn't go anywhere. And uh, um and I 
hadn't heard from Cowboy Keith in a while. Apparently he knew Mike and he told Mike some stories about me. So Dan was Dan was uh, road managing them. We're all out in LA and he said, hey, do you want to come? The monkeys do a thing where you buy a VIP ticket and you get to go to sound check. But it's not like a normal sound check. The sound, I would have paid, seriously, Dan was doing the thing. So we got in for free. But if somebody said $200 to see this, it'd probably be worth more than that. Probably worth about 500 bucks. And I'm considering paying 300 to see Skinny Puppy. Um, they, the monkeys come out and they it's, it's Mickey and Mike telling these great in-jokes that pretty much only they get. And Mike's talking about, or they're 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 trying to amuse each other. And if the audience gets in on it, that's okay. And they were talking about this guy who'd written this one song, and he said, "Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago, or maybe he happily passed away." I don't know. <laughs> there, me, me, our whole row of people who are all there are we're double over hitting each other. You're talking about last train to Clarksville not being a hit, big hit in Hawaii, and they're like, because they don't have trains in Hawaii. <laughs> They do have trains, but the audience is like shaking their heads like that makes sense. And we're all like, it was one of the that was one of the greatest things, just just meeting Mike. Now, Mike pushed out a chair for me to sit down so we could talk about Keith and my legs locked. And I thought I was going to urinate myself um, because to me, like, you know, it, yeah, yeah, he's sitting here eating his food like seven feet from him on the other side of this table is Mickey and Mickey's eating his mashed potatoes. And I said it was like watching the Liberty Bell and the Statue of Liberty have their dinner. I was just like, I, I could not believe that I, you know, Mickey and Mike and I were talking about synthesizers. Uh, there's right, right. Daily Nightly. Mickey was the first person to use a big modular Moog on a pop song. And he had to sell off the uh, modular because they went out of fashion bit by bit. So when they do the song live, Mike makes the modular sounds with his mouth. He's like, <laughs> and I, I just love that, that, uh, you know, getting to meet them and talk about that. But I, I was like a deer in the headlights. I my legs locked. I couldn't move. Well, Mike had Mike was big in my world because I knew the story growing up about Mike punching the wall. Uh, then they were talking about the contract, you know, and we'll give you like a million dollars just to shut up and go away. You know, to play nice and play what we tell you. And Mike turned around and punched a hole in a wall. Yeah. And pointed at a lawyer and said, "You see that wall? That could have been your face." So, and that's now. Here's the thing: we go from meeting them, and I go back, and I almost sort of remind because we're doing sound check remind everybody on stage it's our second night in la you know and remind everybody like oh yeah we i start talking the sound man oh yeah we met mike and i, I almost talked to him about mike beating up don kirshner which i think was next thing to happen was this forgetting that the sound guy is don kirshner's son-in-law <laughs> like, oh, yeah. la is a weirdly oh. small town la is super, a weirdly yeah, small super town. nice guy yeah it is an odd town people people always though they always go like hollywood is so weird and i go come to philadelphia spend two minutes in philadelphia and your head hollywood is so normal it's like a midwestern town compared to philadelphia but yeah it is odd how everybody there is super interconnected if we're talking influences i i have to say i heard some zappa with Zappa, and then if you get into more of your solo stuff, is gets more like into Gary Newman, Nine Inch Nails, and the synth stuff. So, where do you, where your influence have taken you through the Milkman into your own solo stuff? Oh, when when I was when I was growing up, um, you really only had a choice for because regular music wasn't working for him. 
Like yeah. you look at stuff like Barry Manilow or you know uh, the fabulous DeFranco family. Oh uh, man, who who there should be a horror movie based on the fabulous DeFranco family. Um, but I, the, I agree with that. It's called <laughs> I I uh, I drink your blood, I eat your skin. That's about yeah, right. or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, no, that's what down, it's not a heartbeat; it's a death <laughs> beat. Or it's also the lead. It's also the lead song in the yeah. in the movie. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, people. I mean, people have not hip yourselves yet to the fabulous DeFranco family. Uh, Go on that deep dive. Trust me. <laughs> what about the, does the, does the Calcils, are they better than the DeFranco family or are they in the same I, boat? I didn't hear much Calcils growing up. I was only aware of the, I, I was lucky to be, I had an older sister and a younger sister who both used to have terrible taste in music. Yeah. And so like my older sister was all this old hippie rock, you know, like Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. And my younger sister was like in the like, you know, uh, Oh, David Cassidy's younger brother. I forget his name now. Sean Don. So yeah, so I I immediately began <laughs> looking for horrible stuff. And uh, I was lucky in that Cream Magazine existed at the time. And Cream Cream Magazine was like the anti-Rolling Stone. Like they were having none of it. And yeah. I and I've I've told the story a million times, but my first real sort of contact with punk was a picture of the Dead Boys. And there was a, a moving band that said move yourself, and they crossed out the word self and written ass. And I just as as like an 11 year old kid, I thought that was the funniest thing ever. And I asked my older sister about them and she's like, Oh, they're not a good band. Like Fleetwood. <laughs> so but to get, you know, there's before the internet or anything like that, you, a, you didn't really know what bands looked like. Uh, if they didn't, they didn't play them on the radio. So, like, you know, you had to discover stuff like Frank Zappa, usually because somebody complained about it. Um, <laughs> or sometimes, sometimes one of your, the, the older neighbor kids would get shipped off to Christian summer camp. Uh, and while he was away, his mom would get rid of all of his records. And we used to, we, we, we knew, <laughs> this, is a, this is an absolutely true story. I am not making this up. It's too my, specific to be made up. Go my ahead. friends, the Smith brothers and I, um, if we knew that uh, uh, Mark Smith, uh, uh, one of the biggest influences on my life, Smitty, uh, and his younger brother, Tim Smith, if we knew that you were getting shipped off to Christian summer camp, uh, we would make sure to drive by your house on garbage day and get your albums. We wanted what got you sent off to Christian summer camp <laughs> get, get our hands. I think I think Smitty, a lot of kids got sent off for Kiss albums. I wasn't much of a Kiss fan after because I got to see Kiss uh, versus the Phantom of the Park when I was pretty young. Oh, my I, God. Yeah, although I, I want to re- I want to make a sequel to that. I'm, I keep pitching a sequel to that and getting turned down. Um, but um, that'll yeah that that movie really shaved the edge off those guys, didn't it? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> weren't they cartoon form at some point in that movie? Uh, no, not in that movie. They they wish they'd been. Okay. Uh, I, I was some, curious. They did, but they did appear with Scooby Doo, I believe, as a cartoon. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, that's right. correct. They did a uh, they did a comic book at one point that allegedly yeah. has their blood in the ink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. Um, god. I want to talk about um. God, I want to talk about fucking everything. But I, I I was talking to Rich earlier about the eclecticism of the bills on which I would see you guys. So I get into you under the auspices of here's a new punk band coming out of Philly. But I would you would be on bills with like artsy noise bands. Like I feel like I saw Antietam open for you guys at one point. Um, I saw you, I, I saw you open for the chili peppers. I saw you open for Fishbone and Two Live Crew. I don't know if you remember that bill. I, oh, oh, I remember that. I told the story. That's where I met Ice T. Ice T said, I was, he was backstage. And he said, my favorite line ever. It came back from a dressing room and said, oh, those young men are so poor. They have to share one cigarette amongst all of them. <laughs> yeah that that was a fun one uh the the chili pepper store was not a lot of fun um 
And uh, but it was a tour. You toured with them. You didn't. It wasn't just the one off at the Ritz. Okay. I no, no, no. We did. That. I think we did probably like a year and a half on the road. Holy shit! No <laughs> kidding. They were. They would have been touring Mother's Milk, so they were still playing clubs. They hadn't gone arena yet. Yeah. And, and this was and, uh, with uh, two Free Stooges. Uh, that's right. That's fucking yeah. right. I. That was who the other band was. Yes. Yes, the band <laughs> that would try to get me killed no matter where we were. I love these guys to death. But you would be in a bar drinking in Boston. You'd say, oh, wait, well, after the show tonight, I'm just going to go down to this bar and have a beer. And they would do a thing like if they knew you were there, they would walk into the bar and go, great to be here in Boston. Beantown. You know why they call it Beantown? It smells like shit. And all these guys <laughs> would get up like, oh, God, they're going to fight their way out of the bar. Yeah, it, it was uh, um, that that was a weird one. But, yeah, it used to be um, in Philadelphia. We we had a very strange music scene here where it would be a punk band, a rockabilly band. We get a poet. Um, just get up and speak. So you know, it, it was it was really strange. And I try to I try to keep that today. Um, I'm not plugging my radio show, just making people aware that I have one. And I get to hear a lot of different bands. Yeah. Uh, so I, I occasionally uh, we had like uh, up in Canada, we had Lie open up, who were amazing. Uh, not, they're not together anymore. Really happy uh, that in Dallas we could get a Rose Garden funeral party. Oh my God! Uh, you know, it, yeah, which it, it was an amazing band. We got them. Uh, or I think just maybe people in Dallas knew about them, but now they're they're pretty darn famous. Usually, if you're involved with us, you're going to wind up more famous than we are. Uh, <laughs> I, I generally like that, and I, I I'm a stick to the guns person on it. Like I don't, you know, I I will say, okay, guys, I I would like to suggest the 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 opening acts for this because uh, we have we have people that <laughs> send in just frightening stuff and 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 the other guys will just go yeah this is okay they sent in a they have a video like the video is them walking around the outside of their house there's no music in it i appreciate it for what it is but uh so yeah we uh, um well yeah, i appreciate I, godard but i don't yeah. think i want godard opening for us yeah well, I, um, I, i'm super picky uh about like you know because i just want to have have somebody on who's going to do something different. I don't want it to be, you know, the same sort of cookie cutter show. And I, I bump heads. Oh God, um, most promoters are just have, do not you know. They think we're still 19 years old and we may, and big lizard is just out. And they're like, have we got an opening band for you? It's a wacky band and they all wear diapers on their heads <laughs> and they sing about shitting in mailboxes. Uh. And I'm like, you know, there are other bands in your town and then sometimes it's, it's just a, it's just a nightmare i think it's the pitchfork problem uh these you know promoters just open up stuff like pitchfork or you know consequence of sound whatever and they they, they would go there and they just see certain amount of bands and certain bands that don't filter up uh you know we've had i've been um standing next to the promoter from the town and a band i've put on the bill is playing and and you know from that town the guy's like he's uh he goes well wow where are these guys from like they're from your Town. <laughs> I should not have to tell you about them. You should know about them. So yeah, two, two, two things because we're not in a visual medium. I I I, I do want to uh, comment on the fact that you said open up pitchfork and then gestured as if you were opening up a newspaper because we're yeah. we're all over fifty here. So that's yeah, fun. I still um, do. <laughs> I, I, I do like film. It's like when you're doing um when you're doing uh what's the uh, charades or something. Some of the film they do the old timey camera. And crank. I'm like, why? No one does that anymore. I'm going to chime in for a few minutes, and I'm going to kind of hand it back to John. And so it's not—it's impossible to even research you guys. But I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, these guys are just trying to get arrested. You know, I'm like, they're, you know, with the MTV <laughs> thing. Like, I love the MTV thing because it's like. You're, you're owning the ridiculousness of it, but you're also we're, like we're talking about. We watched the 120. I I, I showed him the, or I, I I told him to look for the 120 minutes interview. 
haven't with, haven't haven't seen it in years, but I I can close my eyes and relive it. Yeah. Somebody made a cut of it without anything else. But somewhere I got it, your tape, someone had to me, and I'm like, listening to the car, I'm like, and I even knew at 16, I'm like, this is wrong. But I also, <laughs> but I also loved it. I'm like, oh, these guys go to my shore. Yeah, I, uh, by the way, I always have to explain this because I never, people say, oh, well, how did you write that? And I, I don't, I have the ability, uh, there's a film called Gates of Heaven. It was made by- uh, Oh, Aaron Mars. Yeah. I love that documentary. Who, yeah, the guy who made it developed the skill that I have, which is I talk a lot, but I'm actually listening at the same time. Uh, and it's hard to tell that I'm listening. So you don't realize I will repeat back to people stuff they said and they won't remember they said it. Uh, it's, it's a skill I'm happy to have. Um, uh, we, for that one, for the beginning of Bitch Camaro, that is pretty much word for word. Uh, two guys who were in front of us, in line in front of us at Wawa. Holy shit. They, they, they. I love this. Pretty I love much every detail of everything you just said. For word said that. And we used to like to go to Wawa because we used to have these microwavable bean and cheese burritos and you get them really, really hot, but in some places, you're supposed to pay for them first and then cook them. Although in Philly, you cook them, then you pay for them. But um, a friend of mine and I were down at, down the shore, actually, Atlantic City. The manager of one came up, and he grabbed the burrito out of the microwave. And this thing is like, it's glowing. And you can kind of <laughs> smell the flesh burning on his hand. And he's like, he starts to read the rules of New Jersey, you know, oh, 7-Eleven in that case, etiquette. Yeah. So, you know, I just, that's that's what I would do for all that stuff. I would just listen to people and just take what they said and just use it for my own purpose. I still do it today. I go to a restaurant and some, you know, I'm, I'm hearing more what's going on on other tables because that's, there's usually a song hidden in there. It, it's interesting. There, there was a definite shift starting with Stuart where you would you would start to do the sort of spoken word over over a bed of music songs and was that and i was always shocked with that you would do them live verbatim and i was like it's basically watching this guy do an audition monologue this is fantastic <laughs> you have to you, well first of all i'm i'm happy that a lot of people have auditioned um for um for drama schools using stewart which makes me yes. really really good but oh that makes <laughs> me feel fantastic this is where you're going to get scared stewart is an instance of me taking something someone said to me and pretty much repeating it back there was a guy in oklahoma who was really happy they'd let him out i don't know what from where in time <laughs> And apparently, yes, he believed that gay people were poisoning the soil. Um, and and it's almost it's almost verbatim what he said to me. Now, with that one, I have to do it back, you know, in time, verbatim, everything. Right, and right. I'm lucky I have a really good memory. I can do that. But Bitch and Camaro, when we riff on the beginning, people will get mad. It's not the exact same beginning. Oh, no. I'm like, it's not supposed to be. But all that stuff basically came from uh, time in the studio. You know, studio time is money. And we, yeah. I'm not rich today, and I was even poorer back then. Uh, so we would go into the studio, and we would say, okay, well, how much time is left on this tape? Because you have to use, we tried to yeah. use tape. And the engineer would look at, this is back in the tape days, young people. Young people, <laughs> you the tape. We don't have any young people yeah. watching. Yeah, yeah this, wasn't, this wasn't digital. Um, yeah. We have vintage in the name of the podcast, man. Yeah, I think you're okay. Yeah. Speak freely. So we say, they go like, well, I think there's about, 35 seconds. So the guys would rip or we'd rip on and I would say something over top. And sometimes it was a little bit longer. It would become a song. But uh, um, yeah, that's something I've been doing since I was young. My, my family used to come up with horrible, horrible words to TV songs that didn't have any uh, lyrics in them. Like the Waltons, our version of the Waltons theme was like. Can you sing that for us real quick? Can, can you please sing that real quick? 
If you oh, remember the it. song, uh, <laughs> it's it's Rodney. A lot, involves, a lot of it involves John Boy discovering he's now John Man. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I have a feeling. Let's not get Rodney canceled if we can help. If we can avoid that. I did one quick question about references. You, to the truth, you mentioned in one of your songs something about a Ben Salem murder. Do you know what I'm talking about? It references a murder in Ben Salem. Uh, the thing is, I think this is referencing, there used to be a punk club in Ben Salem, PA. Uh, I can't remember the name. It was in the bottom. The top bar was, was a really rough biker slash redneck bar. Okay. A fr- yeah, a friend of mine and I went up there to get beer to bring back downstairs. And we walked in, I swear, like the music stopped on the jukebox. Everybody turned around. And my friend who was an African-American turned to me and went, well, now we know what they look like with the hoods off. No, I think what we're referencing there is probably something that happened in that in that town. We I once went (laughs) friends of mine and I went to a party afterwards and got chased out by the deranged older brother of the young lady who was like hope throwing the party. So I think that might be it. But I I am I am the I'm like Dennis Hopper, where people walk up to Dennis Hopper or used to. He's dead now. He won't he won't respond. Not as much fun. (laughs) Um, But they would say they would repeat lines to him back from movies, and he'd be like. He had no idea what they were talking. I can't imagine what it would be like to be confronted by somebody going like, he's a great man. We're all little men. He looks at you and said, you know, if you, if you don't remember doing that, that, that must be really frightening. Charging up to Dennis Hopper and go, mommy wants to fuck. has got to be yeah. a really scary thing to happen if you're Dennis Hopper. Well, you know, it's interesting because you, you're mentioning something about just remembering these things verbatim. And it's, I asked you what your comedic influences were. And I'm realizing that as someone who's been working in improv and in sketch and has been, you know, aside from the acting stuff, has been writing for years, you guys are a massive comedic influence on me. And you taught me something that that wasn't codified until later. But funny is in the specifics. Funny is in the details. Funny is in the Def Leppard t-shirt. Funny is in getting uh, Motley Crue's uh, lead singer out of jail. Funny is in dog pussy, not hyphenated, just dog pussy. You know, like you yeah, have and, to do world build, building. Um, John Cleese, I, I know what you're talking. John Cleese once said, "If you have like three people standing there saying, I am a gorilla, I am a gorilla, I am a trap,' you know, and he was like, I am a trash can." Or whatever, then you have to explain why this one person is a trash can. You have to, you have to do that. You have to be able to, if you can make something world building is again, probably because I, I grew up as a Dungeons and Dragons geek or whatever, but I used to really be interested. Like you had to have there had to be a logic to it. There has to be a logic, exactly. And and Cleese is such a he was he's such an interesting comedy theorist because yeah. he's not winging it, but his his writing and his his speaking on comedy he's the author of one of my favorite lines about comedy which is in the first season of monty python we thought comedy was watching people do funny things in the second season we realized it was watching people watch people do funny things you know and the importance of the straight man i wonder if there's almost a sense of like the other three guys straight manning you and that's why the dynamic of the band works so strongly i i think i think it works in an opposite way okay go ahead you basically have, I think it's funny because you basically have three guys rolling their eyes because they they probably are funnier than I am, or, you know, um, and you have this one guy up front who is sort of attempting to hold this whole thing together. And I think that that's the sort of dynamic of it, because, you know, everybody can look at they're, they're much more competent musicians than I am. They much more belong. And it's, it's, it's like sort of odd person out who probably shouldn't be there. And if the record company had their way at one point, I wouldn't have been there. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. All right. Um, if you're going to open that up, what is uh, what do you mean by that? Was, was there was there wait, was there pressure after punk rock? girl yeah i i I think it was some pressure for me to skedaddle 
But, fucking hell. But I hung on. It's Stuart, Stuart saved me. I don't know if I'm lucky or not. I didn't go. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't, we weren't around for much longer after that. We are lucky. Yeah. I want to just do a plug for John because I know he's not going to do it himself. His 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 a uh, no job for a man uh, me- uh, memoir is amazing. Um, I think you would love it. Uh, and that's on my Rodney. list now. Yeah. Well, has there has actually has anyone ever ever approached you guys about doing a documentary about you guys? Um, there's Rodney? a short there's a short film that they filmed on us when we, uh, filmed us. We we have a song called The Prisoner Cinema, and they they came and filmed us uh, live so much so, and they streamed it and eventually made a two part thing out of it. But the uh, um. The, and they interviewed us off and on during it. You begin to forget there are people filming you. So you do stuff like you leave your mic on when you go, and this is all going through when you go to the bathroom. And so yeah. some, somebody's taking a whiz. Um, <laughs> I'm going to sample that whiz. I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to use it in a song. Yeah, I, I have I have no shame. I watch, watch this segue. I want to talk, um, since you mentioned sampling and slowing things down, I remember when the first time you showed up with keyboards. Would it have been around Beelzebub or Metaphysical Graffiti? Somewhere in there, you started showing up with, <laughs> with a, a keyboard on stage. And then on the more recent album, synthesizers are a much bigger part. When did you get so into uh, that kind of that kind of stuff? When did you get into electronic I, music? I'd always been into it. When the first concert I ever went to was in 1976. When, when my family, when you turned 13 years old, you were allowed to go to a concert. My older sister wow. was 13. She saw David Bowie at the Tower. Holy but shit. When I turned 13, I saw Yes in the round. <laughs> wow. Wait, at Valley Forge? Was it Valley Forge? At Valley Forge, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. Not Valley Forge. You're in Philly at the Spectrum. I'm sorry. Oh, Spectrum. Okay, no problem. I saw Cheech and Chong in the round at Valley Forge. <laughs> no, I, was, I saw Cheech and Chong there before Up and Smoke came out. That was a, that was a but I, I'd always liked that. And then I tried to build a synthesizer out of like a metal detector at one point when I was still in my super early teens. Oh, and interesting. I get it to make sounds, but the thing was, I get it to make all these sounds that would later sound like crap work and stuff. And I'd show it to my friends, and my friends were like, "Well, that's dumb." And I'm like, oh, can you, "Are you? Can you tinker? I mean, do you do you know enough electronics to make to tinker in this I, world?" I, I started learning it then. I actually later on in my life, I, I did get a degree um, in in uh, electronics, but the uh, um, which I don't really use for anything. Oh, nice. That's cool. I'm not allowed to touch anything. I think I got it because my dad was so bad at wiring up the house. Everything in our house shocked you when I was growing up. Like you touched the fridge. Like I weighed 90 pounds for most of my life because yeah, an aversion therapy. You would touch the fridge. And shocked him. I'm not eating. What today. neighborhood did where'd you grow up? You grew up in South Philly, right? No, no. I grew up. I live in South Philly because it's the Riviera of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, oh and I God. love South Philly. Um, you yeah, know, you're I definitely a steel town called Coatesville. Well, I want to I want to ask because you've you've I, I was looking at your playlists. How do you find new music? How does new music get to you? Um, there's a couple podcasts that I listen to pretty regularly. Uh, one's called We Have a Technical. Another thing that has been uh, um, I know a lot of musicians and they'll recommend. Sure. And over the years, I've got to meet a lot of people, which is pretty weird, uh, you know, to be into a band. And they're like, oh, I listened to you guys growing up. And I'm like that. That was a thing that happened um, recently with Black Blag, which is America's leather boy band. And I was like, oh, I take I take great honor in that. That's cool. Um, but the uh, um, what's, what's the other one? We have a technical and. Oh, we have a technical one I listen to. I hit a couple pub publications like Regen Magazine is another good one. Oh yeah, Regen Music. I just I just constantly listen to stuff and I try to listen to stuff that's new. Um, and and that's the the sort of way because I I don't want to write. I don't want to keep recycling the same. Nothing against. And I love Mommy's Little Monster. It's one of the best albums ever made. But I know people that stop buying that album, and I know musicians who just keep sort of recycling that in their heads. And I don't I don't want to get caught in that trap. 
So that's part of the reason why I'm, it's very selfish. And I'm also looking over my shoulder um, to be, see who's coming up, who who could easily Zoom ask me. Um, that was a, you know, <laughs> a youth code. Never, never go on before youth code. That's something I used to tell people. You want to go on, you know, you want to go on, no, don't go on after them. You want to go on before them. Don't go on after them because they will, they will smoke you off the stage. So I'm just, um, you yeah, know, I'm just interested in, in new music and what's out there. And it does take, for the odder stuff, because it's not it's not handed to you much right. back in the day, you know, the, the good music, like, you know, when you were listening to punk and you're listening to like Black Flag and Killdozer and so yeah, that wasn't handed to you. That wasn't no. on the radio or and we found stuff. It was harder to find stuff back then. We, we had to go to like fanzines. You know, I, I miss fanzines. They're so weird. Well, your zine Wait. is amazing. I want to just do a fuck for your zine. Your zine's amazing. The one for <laughs> Seventh Victim? No, well, I like that oh. one too, but the one for the dead milkman—that's fucking—that's a. Oh yeah, I don't think we've done that in a long time, but yeah, that used to be. Yeah, that was a back in the day sort of thing that we used to do because that's what everybody you made a scene. We had a scene. Egghead had a zine called Go Metric that was yeah. um uh that was we were like from the punk rock division of a nefarious multinational corporation called Gentech. There was this whole fucking like Marvel Cinematic Universe before a multiverse before we had a word for such a thing. And yeah. uh and it was because I would get I would get the Dead Milkman newsletter in the mail in high school and just be like, Yeah, these guys know what they're doing, man. This is the full this is branding. I don't have a word for it yet, but this is great branding. There's, yeah, Joe and I started that in high school. I think as a joke, you know, to, to you know, create before the band would play anywhere. We had these fake gigs that we would play, and we'd make them in the thing. But there's a um, there's an art store, uh, artish store uh, next to or re artish is like childish, and re is childlike or whatever. I forget. Okay. <laughs> but it's a good thing. It's a good arty store. It's right next to Crash Bang Boom in Philly. But they, you people can't see this. I'm holding up. They have zines there. And I was oh, so nice to find zines. I'm like, zines. These people are making these really cool little weird zines. This one has all sorts of horror movies and people dressed up like they um, Z- uh, Legend of Zelda. And I was so, so thrilled with would that. You, how would you connect your zine to your following? Do you feel like that was a big part of the reason you? Well, when we first started, we had no following. We just read we just read it ourselves. And then we used to have a P.O. box. So when we first started playing gigs and stuff, you would get a P.O. box. Yeah. And you'd say, hey, if you want to, if you want to, we wouldn't call it a fan club. He's like, if you want to know anything about this band, right. and then people would write us and we would send back these zines that we were made, made which were completely ridiculous. And, and you, you know, have to go down and Xerox them all and fold them. I still do it today with Seventh Victim. We have a zine and and it, we haven't we haven't done anything in a while because COVID really sidelined us. But uh, um, we have one sitting there for, and eventually the new album uh, from Seventh Victim comes out. We'll have the zine for it, but uh, well, you you used to, you used to, you either used to like uh, find a copy place, or if you were really lucky, one of your moms worked in an office, yeah. and you would go there after hours, and you'd get some eleven by seventeen. Ideally, if you had a really good industrial printer or a <laughs> copier, rather eleven by seventeen, you could really you could get some fucking damage done with those things. But I used good, to love uh, the zines that were so personal; they made no sense. They were supposed to be about the music industry. There was one that was supposed to be about Sid Vicious that I loved because it had nothing to do with Sid Vicious, which is this woman just ranting about her life and talking about how even though Sid Vicious stabbed Nancy to death, she worked it out in her head that he was an early feminist. Everything. <laughs> it was so insane. There was one whole thing about her like ranting about how her how her child qualified for the free lunch program because she had been oppressed as a Sid Vicious fan or something. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm having Hilarious. trouble connecting the dots here. Like, but yeah, so there, there were all sorts of crazy like really bizarre zines. It used to, um, I was showing, uh, I have high weirdness by mail uh, from the church of the subgenius. I was looking at that book there and I was thinking about 
because uh, we were, I had we had like a, a get together on Saturday night, and we were talking about kook literature. How you said to send out kook stuff now gets delivered right to your door via YouTube and TikTok and uh, stuff. But yeah. back then, man, if you wanted to hear from some guy who thought the aliens were coming, you had to send him a self-addressed stamp envelope. And then, you know, wait for your mail to come in. And you got all excited when it got here. I'm like, eh. do you remember uh, there was a store in New York called See Here? And it was all zines all the time. Like the closest thing, like flip side was the most corporate thing you could find there. <laughs> everything else, everything else was fucking newsprint or Xerox. And they had, this is the kind of touchy thing. They had everything. They carried everything, yeah. including some really problematic shit. Really scary uh, stuff. Yeah. Really scary stuff where you were like, oh, I want to wash my hands. Having yeah. touched this. I you need know? a long, hot shower now. Yeah. And stuff. You people are familiar with answer me, scarier than that. Yeah. 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 You would find some really cool shit there. And it was a lot of very personal projects, people who would do like a 50 copy run of something. Did you have uh, a, an equivalent of that in Philly? I think everybody in Philly made zines. Well, you got me thinking now about uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, you just have the scene report. And yeah. the scene report was always people writing about their own bands. So yeah, 100%. Little, little blurbs in there about like, you know, in our town there's, and you see like, you know, there's like, I don't know, smoking rejects or something like that, you know, like yeah. strange headed dudes. And then there's, you know, fight against everything, which is my band. And we, and there'd be like this, the, the whole thing would be all about this guy's band. And then it would always stay stuff like, you know, like we plan to play out and play some shows as soon as we get some amps. <laughs> and I used to love that. That was, that was my favorite things about that magazine. Maximum Rock and Roll's goal was to try to cover absolutely every punk band that was out there. Um, let's. I want to talk about some more recent stuff from the Milkman. The one of my favorite recent ones from you guys is "Big Words Make the Baby Jesus Cry," which is demonstrably true. But I, I also like what what set that off. What what triggered that? Because it's pretty. Uh, what is that? Twenty fourteen. I, I, I just kept encountering people who are anti-education who would say stuff like, well, well, you know, the more learning you get, the dumber you are and all this. And, and I would use it. I would sometimes use it to get out of a conversation. I would say, like, you know, I could explain it to you, but we both know that big words make the baby Jesus cry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because sometimes you just don't have time. You just don't. Like, I used to try to explain things to people. You know, like, well, here's why this is. And and 10 minutes later, they're back to believing what they believed originally. So yeah. I, yeah. After a while, I would get tired. I, I, I do do my best to explain things logically to people. But sometimes you just get tired and you just want to say, yeah, big words. Big, big. I can't tell you, can't tell you, what. you, you mentioned uh, having a, a poli sci background. What was your focus when you were when you were studying that? Do you have one or was there a particular area of? Uh, no, I didn't have, I did, I did not have a focus. I actually dropped out of college, but my focus was dropping out of college. But um, <laughs> I, I did show up as a freshman and find out that we had to do a like a ninety six page term paper on like Eastern Africa. You know, like you know, like pick a country, and I'm like, that's that's a pretty good assignment for a for a uh, for you know freshman. Uh, so yeah, that was, but you know, poli sci is like boot camp. I had a, a minor in public administration, but um, yeah, it, it's uh, I to this day, I, I I can tell somebody majored in poli sci. What what is the what are the telltale? What are the tells? What are the tells that someone has has uh, majored in poli sci? The way I put it is, uh, I'm going to relate it back uh, to a friend of mine who'd gone to Howard University, and he once said, "You can tell a Howard man, but not much." <laughs> and it's the same way. We, we will jump in on any subject 
and just you know we have we we are not known for not having an opinion. We don't sit there and go like you know well maybe I get I guess I'd never thought about that. Is is something you you never hear from a police. Very few of us sleep at night. Uh, right, I, right. <laughs> I I have to constantly stay busy. Otherwise, I go bonkers. So yeah. I'm doing something with my hands, you know, writing something or or working on something or you're know, just learning something new. Because I went to I had. I wound up because of the of COVID. I actually wound up in therapy, which didn't didn't last long. My therapist was like, "No, you're done. I never want to see you again." Oh, but, uh, one Christ. of the things I learned was uh, one of the things was like I was trying to do. I'm sorry, just saying I was trying to do stuff. People would say like, "You know, you've got to chill out and go look at a tree or whatever." And I found out that is not for me. Uh, my you know, therapist said, "Yeah, that that's that sort of positive stuff doesn't work for everybody. You if if you like to stay busy, stay busy, be you, be busy all the time. You'll sleep better." So that's what I do. Fantastic. Do you have a, do you have a doom scrolling problem? No, I don't. I I I had a, a doom scrolling problem, and now I'm like I'm I'm really good with time management. So I'll say to myself, I don't have time for that. I, I don't play video games or anything. And I don't like I was I was one of the people who was off of Twitter. So I, I do have a Mastodon. I love Mastodon. If you guys are open to it, I would love if you, not right now, but if you do another hour, I feel like that would be if this is two of you, if you're cool with that, that would be great because I feel like I want more. OK, well, know, yeah, I mean, if you want, if you was, we always do a part two sometime. I, I think that would be cool to do a part two with just yeah, you guys. I feel, if you're open I feel to like that. Rodney, I'm I feel up for it. I was Rodney. really enjoying this. Just flew by. Rodney, you deserve you deserve the Frost Nixon treatment. I mean, like you deserve like like we got to go all in. We on could this get shit. the money, but it would be wrong. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, I'll I'll leave you to go. Thank talk you, to dude. Thank you so much. Thank this you guys great, so man. much. I really enjoyed the hell out of this. Want to go down and see what the hell's going on downstairs? Okay. Right, see you later. Thank, thanks again, Rodney. All right, bye. The thing that struck me upon first hearing the Milkmen was the the clean guitar sound. What distinguished you guys was the slight more jangle quality, the less use of distortion. Was that a conscious choice or was that just we don't have a distortion pedal? So this is how we sound like what 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 triggered that? I had a big muff distortion pedal back then, and I did bring it to practice early on. But when we had Dean in the band. And it just didn't work. It didn't it did. feel right. The sound wasn't right. In fact, Dean said he didn't like it. So I went back to not using any pedals, just using whatever little distortion I got out of the amplifier itself, which wasn't much. I tried to make it clean. It's not a conscious decision than it was, but I wasn't thinking that it would be radical. Uh, it led one of my friends to call you folk core. Um, and the first time I heard that, I thought, oh, that that makes a certain degree of sense. I, I hear a certain folky quality to uh, to to the the music. What did you grow up listening to? I grew up listening to all kinds of stuff, <laughs> whatever records I did. Uh, my uncle gave me out of a jukebox. So they were like the hits from the time or the near hits of the 60s. I first started listening to records as as early as I have memories. So there was there was that 60s pop element and there's some folk element to that, too. I always liked Peter, Paul and Mary. But when I found out about Bob Dylan, I glommed onto that hardcore and liked that a lot. That's why I wanted to play guitar. OK. I also like the Beatles when I probably early high school age, I started reading about them and they fascinated me. 
And, and also whatever. the birds who covered a lot of uh, Bob Dylan songs, and they were probably a folk rock band, one of the first folk rock bands. So it's not unnatural for me to think of ourselves as a folk punk band. In fact, that's what when in the imaginary Dead Milkman, that's what I labeled us. When all right, I so remember you, whether you, I called it punk folk or folk punk, but I called it one of those things. The, the you mentioned the imaginary dead milkman. Now, is the imaginary dead milkman the version that kind of only existed in the zine? Yes, the the newsletter. We called it a newsletter. Newsletter. Mimeograph newsletter. Okay. <laughs> we sent to high school mates <laughs> who were wanted to be in on the joke. This is what got Rodney involved. My neighbor and I made a tape mostly on New Year's Eve 79 called So Long 70s. We involved my siblings and anybody who was around, one of his youth pastor friends <laughs> from church was involved in it. And it was just a cassette recording of songs that we concocted to match the Dead Milkman newsletter, the Joe Jack Talcum newsletter. It actually was, it wasn't even Joe Jack Talcum, it was Jack Talcum, pardon me, Jack Talcum okay. newsletter. I put the Joe on it after we became a real band. Okay. That want to be called Jack all the time. How did Ornamental Wigwam come into this? Is that did that was that the first tryout of the fake band to become a real band in your head or not no? So much? Well, the Dead Milkman became a real band at the moment that Dean joined the band and we played a real show. Okay. But Ornamental Wigwam came later because that oh, okay. was Dave and me. That right. came about you. because Dave and I were writing tons of songs for the Milkman and. Dean would be the gatekeeper of the songs as to whether this is acceptable for the Milkmen or not. And the less punk songs he rejected. Huh. So we kept them. We decided to form our own duo at that point so that these songs wouldn't go to waste. And we called that duo Ornamental Wigwam. And didn't, and didn't you guys it. do a didn't you guys do a Beatles cover? I feel like you guys did a Beatles cover. Yes, we did a Beatles cover. The Dead Milkmen at that time were half lovers of the Beatles and half haters. So we were a divided band. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Dave and I were Beatles fans and the other two uh, were annoyed by the Beatles, which I can sort of understand because they did get overplayed. But we did. What song did we do? And I Love Her. That's the one. And I Love Her. We that's right. that live. That would be part of our live yeah. set. I'm curious though. This is interesting. Yeah, that you yeah, say yeah. that were there were uh, that Dean was the gatekeeper, and there were some songs that simply were not Dead Milkman songs because there is such there's such variety to. I, I'm not trying to be an idle flatterer here. There's such variety to the Dead Milkman catalog. There's stuff that that transcends into into funk. There's a lot of great country. There are some more punky rave ups. Like what what is it that doesn't make the cut? on an album like Bucky yeah. Fellini, which is all over the place. You know, I mean, well, there's so many. Like, I want to be a vegetable. There's, that was one of them, probably because he thought they were boring songs. That's all I could think of. But let's let's talk about uh, about the first time, not the first time, but the first time I heard you two, you and Dean collaborate, obviously, on Dean's Dream. And I, I loved that song because it was so clearly what it said it was. It, so it very clearly was like, oh, the guy like had a pizza before bed or something and had the craziest fucking dream. And then and Joe said it to music. And I think I'm close about that. Like, how did that that song come into being? At a Denmark uh, practice session, Dean brought the lyrics and written down almost the same way. Really? And I had this dream and I woke up and wrote it down and I formalized it into a lyric. Can anyone do anything with it? I looked at it and said, I'll try. I think uh, that weekend, that Sunday, exactly. It was that Sunday because we had a Saturday, Sunday practice at Ridley Park at Dave's parents' house. 
and I started fooling around with it and it just came to me. I listened to my brother's copy of U2's uh, whatever whatever the album was that had MLK on, MLK on it. No, that's Unforgettable Probably Fire. Somebody, Unforgettable somebody, Fire. I listened to that oh. and uh, somehow that inspired me to come up with music because I was hearing the way that Bono uh, sung over top of repetitious chords Mm-hmm. and kept the melody ever sort of changing over it and that's i that's the inspiration was i could i want to try something like that and i did and there were, i had the lyrics right in front of me and i just did it and uh made a quick recording and i don't think i played the recording for dean i just it was simple enough i could play it for the dead milkman at our next rehearsal which was at his parents house in sellersville <laughs> and he said he liked it we tried rodney on the vocals at first it didn't work out, so we said, I'll sing that song. At, up to that point, I had a song in the set called Watching Scotty Die. But Which, That didn't show up for another couple of albums, screen. though. That was that was like two albums later, Watching Scotty Die showed up, right? Yeah. yeah. But at that point in time, this is 1983, that <laughs> Dean Stream took, took that spot of the song I Get to Sing to give Rodney a break. Oh, interesting. And it, was, it went on to our first album, Watching Scotty Die didn't. It didn't go into our second album either, but by the time our third album came at, around, we needed, we were touring so much that we went back in time and got some old songs because we didn't have as much time to write anymore. And we still needed to deliver an album. <laughs> there is an interesting strain of melancholy, both in the lyrics and in the songwriting. Like it, what, what I loved about your stuff you know, you'd, you'd be sitting there, you'd be bouncing around in the pit and suddenly you'd be like, wait, was that an A7 chord? What's going on here? Something, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, the, I, I don't want to get too guitar world here because I, I don't know enough about it. But was there, a, is that the Dylan influence? It might be. Yeah. I liked playing around with chords. Dave and I like music theory a bit. It's almost like a mechanical way of writing because we wrote so fast. It was like a way of, let's try this out. Let's try that out. In fact, you mentioned a, Someone uh, from the band Electric Glove Muffin, Rich, actually. I don't know if you know that band. Yeah, yeah, sure. Really band. There aren't any punk songs with major seventh chords. Did you notice that? And, and as a matter of fact, now I think about it, the, the Minutemen were already doing major seventh chords. <laughs> right, right, right. But I said, I could, I bet I could try that. And that's how Tiny Town came about, because I decided to start it with an A major seventh. I would often find myself over on stage right, which was often where you were, and I would I'd be looking at your left hand and be like, these aren't just bar chords. There's a lot of interesting shit going on over here. I saw you pushing yourself as a guitarist in a way that a lot of guys weren't. Did you have, do you have a background in music theory? Did you study it? Uh, just a little bit. I, I took a I took a class when I went to Temple University. I didn't study music, though. But okay. my major was radio, television, film in the communications department. Sure. And there was a lot of leeway. It was liberal arts. There was a lot of leeway as to what you could take. But I maxed out my music courses. I couldn't take any more than I did. Interesting. You had to be a music major to take more. That was one of the highest level courses that was open to anybody was their introduction to music theory. So I took it. There's moments on that early record and why I keep going back to them and why they've aged really well is that like, oh, shit, these guys just went to the relative minor for the bridge. Yeah, we would do that. We would call hinge. We would try it for hinge chords to modulate temporarily. We did that trick a lot. And that's part of what Dave likes to do, too, because he didn't like anything to sound similar to what it's already been. 
So he pushed me, I pushed him. He he would come up with bass lines that I would have to try to find a, a guitar part to go along with. So I was talking to Rodney about about the wild amount of variety of bands you played with over the years. You know, I saw you on that bill with Two Live Crew and Fishbone at the Palladium in New York. I, I, and were there times where you would listen to other bands and be like, ah, I should, I should try to do my version of that? Yes. Yes. Uh, example, when I first saw Camper Band Beethoven. Oh, yeah? If, if you know, remember them. That gave me a lot of inspiration to try things. I want to chime in for a second because one thing I noticed about I really like your artwork and I, and, and I want to get to that a little bit later, but to me, there's a, I, I, it was hard not to make a connection to Daniel Johnston. And then I started thinking about that in terms of your music. Do you, was that, it was Daniel uh, influence in terms of your art and music and or music? You covered uh, rocket ship. Oh, I think Daniel was a great, great, great songwriter. I'm so glad we got to meet him, hang out with him a little bit. Tell me about, if you're okay sharing a little bit of that, I would love to hear more about that. Our, on our first United States tour in the summer of 85, drove out to California and went to places in between, of course. But Austin was one of them, and that was one of the mem more memorable places uh, because we had we already knew the band Glass Eye from, from the fact that they played in Philadelphia on tour when we saw them play. So we already made a connection with them, and they gave us a place to stay. And Kathy McCarty and Brian, Kathy was not, I guess, sort of. She dated him, him, right? She briefly dated him a little bit yes. or something? And yeah. this was at that point in time. I think he, she introduced us to him and uh, he handed us some tapes. <laughs> it's like he handed lots, lots of people tapes. Wow. He even gave us a song to cover. He wanted us to cover Casper the Friendly Ghost. He ripped the lyrics out of his. Holy shit. Uh, notebook and gave him to Rodney. <laughs> I wonder if Rodney still has that. But instead of Casper, we chose Rocket Ship to cover. And that's another song that ended up on our third album. Oh wow, but I don't know. First, we first heard that in 1985 when we were touring for our first album. And does your art play into this? That's the bigger question. I wanted to talk about your art in this in the interview. I don't did you is that something you've always done? Are you it's always something I've always done. I was already doing I think Daniel and I had parallel lives in a lot of ways i'm yeah, not gonna say i'm there's better there. i'm not gonna say <laughs> i'll ever approach his art and artistry but i was already drawing from a young age and also making super eight movies similar to what he did and including top animation which i still do from time to time can you tell us about maybe some of the stories that were involved with those i did one where i'm just throwing throwing an orange around and just showing an orange in different weird places being tossed. That was real stupid, but that was kind of like conceptual because I had been reading about Yoko Ono's films, which <laughs> and Andy Warhol stuff. So I thought that, and I was just in high school. What, what, what was your, what was your art path? I mean, I mean, and music, I'm, just, I'm trying to, I like to do a little biography, but loosely and I'm trying to form like who you were as a kid in terms of art and music and film, whatever you're doing, like what, where does all this stuff come from? Um, I think I always took solace in being alone and drawing from the, my earliest memories. And one of the one of the presents I remember getting was uh, like a a papermate uh, colored marker set. <laughs> I think I was uh, probably ten or I, no, it was probably eleven or something. And that just changed things a, a bit to bring color into my drawings because before I would be a pencil drawer. 
but I loved comics like Mad Magazine. That was one of my favorites back then. And I love to draw my own funny things. I love wacky packs. So I made, I don't know if you remember what wacky packs are. I love wacky packs. Uh, <laughs> so it's just love like, wacky you know, packs. do something that's like that. Cause I, I was, I was thinking of the future, like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Maybe I'll be an artist. Maybe I'll be the person that makes wacky packs for other kids to stick around things. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> clever ways to make my, I made like a, a different magazine. I forget what it was called, but it was styled after mad. And I tried to draw parodies of shows that I'd seen and things like that. So that's, that's my earliest memories. What, yeah. um, what were some of the things we've talked a little bit about your musical influences. I'm interesting. I'm interested in what made you laugh. What were some of your comedic influences when you were, when you were growing up, when you're a funny band, you run the risk of being dismissed as a novelty act. And obviously you were not that to me, but you were really fucking funny. But I'm I, like, I like novelty songs. I will admit to that. I like okay. listening to Dr. Demento's show on Sunday nights. Mm -hmm. I listened nice. to it. I would tape it off the speakers onto my cassette, my little, Louis cassette recorder. Sure, sure. Certain songs over and over again, because that's the only way we could do it back then. Um, so what else? What else? What else did Demento turn you on to? There was a that song Shaving Cream, which eventually got to be annoying, but I liked it at first. And there's a lumberjack song by Monty Python. I like that one a lot. Somewhere in there must have been uh must have been my Python influence because I, I love a lot of stuff. But I, I love a lot of stuff that's influenced by Python, and you, you mm -hmm. all fit in that. So it's and the spam song, spam, 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 and spam. What about other like other comic artists or other even like animation or even weirder like alternative animation? What, what other stuff kind of got in your world, just as an artist overall or a musician? What, what kind of stuff was also getting in there? There's a lot of cartoons, but I never got I never got into that kind of animation. I was just in the stop animation. Did you watch a lot of stop motion? Did you ever get into like the Swankmeyer kind of shit? Or no. like the guy did Frank I Zappa? Just, my my sister got a book for her with a Super 8 camera. Oh, we nice. were close back then. And there is a, an instruction on how you can make a mounting for a Super 8 camera, which we, which we, which I did at, we made a mounting out of wood and that's what we, to aim down onto a desk more or less where you could do your stop. Uh, you could pin your stop animation things to them. We believe it or not made movie. Oh, nice. We made videos to Beatles songs. <laughs> really? So we, we, you know, <laughs> that's incredible. And we would show them to the neighborhood on this with the tape synced up as best we could to the Beatles song that we made the movie. To. Were, were you in, were you involved in some of the like video making? Cause I feel like I'm, I just watched uh, the, the video for Methodist coloring book, which Somehow you managed to offend every single religion. It's amazing. I don't know if you've. We were, we were always involved it, somehow in the idea process, but every single one of our videos, except for the very first one we made, were directed by Adam Bernstein, and he did the most. He did a lot. He had a lot of creative input into them. He would take our ideas. We would have a power okay. session with him beforehand, and then he would say, "Well, this is what I got." Well, yeah, let me, let me, I want to stay what, on the um, coloring book for one second, because it was interesting. It was on the yeah. album after the album with the hit, if, if memory serves, right. That's, it goes, feels above a metaphysical graffiti, right? You, you come out, you have this sudden surprising meteoric rise on the, the, you know, the fourth album. And so there was this incredible moment of, of pop ascension for you guys. And then the next album 
you 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 have another pop song on there, but it's making fun of organized religion. <laughs> was that a deliberate fuck you to like, no, we will not take this. Was it just like, this is what I want to write about now? Rodney wrote the lyrics of that song. But I wrote oh, really? And then he had, he had me sing it. Oh, um, how often did that happen? How often I, would he I, write? I actually wrote that for him to sing. Oh, wow. I thought okay. I was writing it so that he could sing it, actually. Oh, and if I was going to take any of his songs for me to sing, it would have been in praise of Sha Na Na, but it didn't work out. He actually sang in praise of Sha Na Na. Yeah. The one I would want to sing. The one thing that we didn't have control over in our record contract was choice of video. That was up to the record company. They paid for the video, but we got choice of producer. We got, they couldn't say one word about what we included in the album, but they could pick the video. Nice. So I didn't get no one. No okay. one got the choice to make that the video, nor Punk Rock Girl. Um, we did push because Punk Rock Girl was a success. We did push for uh, the Smoke and Banana Peels video. Um, oh, interesting. So what what was the idea? Why make that the follow up to Punk Rock Girl? I think we were all kind of proud of it because it was weird. We could make fun of psychedelia with it and that was probably an easy thing maybe it was too easy but anyway methodist coloring book was it and that that was that's the one that they did we had to we actually had to edit that slightly because mtv rejected it really because of the church blowing up because yeah yeah Yeah, that'll 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 rub certain segments of the population the wrong way so it was it was a a model church which we had detonated in the video but yeah Adam came up with the idea of reversing it so that it, instead of blowing up, it comes back together. And then they accepted that. Where to, just to go into it, where were the where were the comedy connections between you and Rodney, if I can ask? Because it sounds like obviously you both fit in, you both were influenced by Mighty Python. Were there other, you know, comedy stuff? Was he in the more documentos? Like what were the commonalities of you guys? I don't think Rodney liked Dr. Demento as much as I did, but we both liked Monty Python. We both like National Lampoon. That was big in the 70s. Oh, sure, sure. Rodney to me, K, because he did that sort of thing naturally. While when I would go to his house and watch movies or TV shows, he would be constantly making a running commentary where he'd be making fun of it. And it was also more like maybe with him and his mom, it was funnier than the show we were watching even if the show was uh not supposed to be funny it was entertaining right right oh, and this was years before mystery science theater came out were you friends before music or did you meet through how did you meet how did you guys meet um we met at the lunch table when i was in 12th grade and he was in 11th grade wow and where did you you grow up you grew up in philly correct Coatesville, Pennsylvania. You both grew up in Coatesville. Okay, cool, yeah. nice. All right. Um, and I just want, since we're talking about punk rock girl, I didn't want to. I didn't want to ask too much about it, but I'm just curious on on you know any thoughts you have on what that song was for you, for better or worse. That was also a song that was written a couple years before it was put on album because that was a song that Dave and I wrote specifically for the ornamental wigwam. Oh, interesting. It was such a runaway surprise hit. Um, it really came out of left field, definitely for your fans. Um, and it must have kind of blindsided you guys, too. Was there a, yeah. we're just along for the ride? Was there a queasiness about it? To this day, I still don't really get it. The song itself is is funny and has a great hook um, and a, a 
demonically catchy guitar solo with just a, a lick of bluegrass in it, which is kind of uh, fun uh, to, to my largely untrained ear. Um, but there had to be a sense of dreaminess to that ascension because yeah, you were on, you were on club MTV and you yeah. were, you were playing larger venues. Well, we were on tour. We were on the road when all that was happening with whom with us, we were promoting the Beelzebub album. It didn't happen instantly when Beelzebub was released, but it happened as we were traveling. Given that there's no internet and no one has a cell phone, how do you start to, if you're in the, you know, you're kind of in a bubble. It's like, you know, van, show, van, show. How did you find out? Was it an audience reaction that tipped you off to it? Like, what? Um, well, our manager would have regular calls with us through pay phones and a lot of times just hotel phones. Yeah, yeah. And he would call our road manager and our road manager would give us details and things like that. And then we found out, oh, MTV put it in um, dial MTV or whatever, and mm -hmm. people are going to call in. And then MTV's putting it into the regular rotation. That was the most shocking thing to me. It's like, how did that happen? Because we'd done a couple of videos before, like for Big Time Operator and the thing that only tippies. And right. they got, but they both got played a couple times each on the show called 120 Minutes. Uh -huh. And that's pretty much what we expected for any video we made to have it be shown on prime time or daytime and not just in the 120 minute show, which started in, you know, on the East Coast at midnight itself kind of shocking. And honestly, we didn't we thought MTV would be bad for our image. <laughs> it was being bad for our street cred. I mean, I, I was, some of us thought that. When they asked us to be on 120 Minutes and host it, we were happy to do it and we complied. But then when we got the request to be on Club MTV, we turned it down only to find out that our record company and our manager said we absolutely could not turn it down. We have to comply. Yeah. What were your conditions for playing Club MTV, Joe? You had some very, very, you had some very, very strict conditions <laughs> to, to do that show. Very specific. <laughs> I think we wanted a tuba. That's correct. Yes. There's a, yeah. And a few yes. other things. I don't remember what <laughs> they were. Maybe a bucket of rubber rubber worms for fishing. And when they didn't have what we wanted, we, we refused to go on and they got us the tuba. <laughs> they said, You really want a tuba? They ran in the tuba. Power corrupts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up another topic, and if this is uncomfortable, let me know. I knew you're very close with Eric Peterson, which is kind of how I met you. I don't want to, you know, I know, and I don't want to get into what happened with Eric. I was just curious on your connection with him because you know you guys did a lot together. You did put an album out together. What was um, your connection with Eric? Well, I, I first saw him when I got invited to play a basement show in West Philly solo acoustic, and he was playing the show, and I was bowled over. We played together in a Motown cover band called Mohawk Town, and that was a lot oh of fun. God. He played guitar, I played keyboards. We both got asked to do that split uh, by a record company called Clown House in, from Germany, oh, but we did oh, wow. it, and then Clown House, for some reason or another, couldn't follow through. So Eric decided, well, we've got this thing recorded. He decided to put it out on his own label, which was pretty awesome of him. Yeah, I mean, I just, I know both, it's funny, if I were to make a mixtape called, like, Nice Guys and <laughs> Punk, you'd both be on there. 
he, t- he taught me a lot about just who you know just who to be and, and this is the uh not, this is the mischief brew guy okay. yeah he would play with a yeah. band or yeah. by himself and call it mischief brew regardless and he i think his songs are classics i listen to them still and they just get better and better they're amazing what was the album that that what was the uh, label that put out bills above uh that was enigma well that was fever records but enigma was the what they would call P and D. So our first and only true Enigma album was our fifth one, which was Metaphysical Graffiti. And then while touring for that album, Enigma went out of business or was subsumed by Capitol Records. And we were left labelless. Real quick, this says that it was a sin with Hollywood Records that you left Restless and signed with the Walt Disney Company owned Hollywood Records the following year. They were focused more heavily on your singing and songwriting and use Litterman more as a keyboardist. But well, that's, that's, very that's what happened. That's what happened with Soul Rotation is that I sang more of the songs. It didn't mean because I sang a song that I was the lyric writer of that. That was something that people right. just assume incorrectly. But um, I remember being asked to sing the song and I just complied and said, I'll sing this one. I'll sing that one because... Rodney wanted to focus on playing the keyboards and he was more new to it then. He started playing, he started learning keyboards for, he didn't play the keyboards on Beelzebub, but on the tour for that album, the first album that he played keyboards on was Metaphysical. So recording recording of Beelzebub, I played like a B4 organ that was in the studio, just because we, that was our first time in that studio, it was called Arlen studios in austin texas and i was already fairly proficient in playing keyboards anyway so when we saw that 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 was there in the studio we just took advantage of it and put it on some of the songs it wasn't something that we planned on when we were writing the songs i would write songs on keyboards because it was easy so you you go out on tour for soul rotation you record a live album. I remember looking at the track listing for Chaos Rules live at the Trocadero and noticing some songs were missing and then noticing in the liner notes that Hollywood Records wouldn't let their songs be on that record. Is that, am I correct about that? Yeah, it was a contractual thing that we couldn't, because when sometimes record contracts will prohibit you for a period of time of from re-recording the same songs and re-releasing them which was, and it was in the, it was still in the window of time. The company then was Restless. That was the company that came out and that was still alive after Enigma went away. There was Restless Records. They couldn't get the rights. I guess they asked Hollywood nicely, but Hollywood said no. Well, let's talk about that for a moment because Rodney was talking about at that time getting, because you guys had, in your initial run, you have like, I think one, maybe two more records in you before you guys take a break for quite some time. And was that sort of like, he speaks of a, of a deep, deep jadedness with the music industry. Were you, were you going through that as well? The, the music industry was pretty messed up, <laughs> but I guess it's uh I can't I can't really blame anybody but ourselves because we signed these contracts. Everyone I've worked with in the music industry, um, aside from people who like run really heart heart project indie labels, you got a lot of dummies in there. And I think that would be really frustrating for a band as smart as yours. I think we, we were frustrated with Hollywood Records 
we were brought into Hollywood Records by their then vice president, who was half owner of Restless Enigma, and that whole Rhino thing or whatever. I uh-huh. Rhino wasn't involved yet, but he was one of the Hind brothers. But by the time our Soul Rotation album was recorded and before it came out, he was let go. He was no longer in the company. So we didn't have anybody in the company who liked us or understood us who could help us. We were kind of left floundering around. And yet we did another record with Hollywood. They dropped us, but they picked us back up again because they wanted to try something with their independent distribution arm and said, we'll give you a shot. And that's what Not Richard But Dick was. We failed twice with them. We didn't meet their sales goals by their Christmas time or whatever. So I think that that added to the jadedness of it. And that's when we decided to throw in the towel. But Restless, which was by now revitalized i think there was a period of time when there was no restless at all no enigma mm-hmm. they came back sort of like resurrected from the dead mm-hmm. and they asked us for a three record contract and we didn't have anything else going on any at all anyway and that's right. they wanted a live album the greatest hits and anything that we wanted to do and that's our three record that's the last they, they comprised the last three records we got the live album we did stoney's extra stout pig and then the the compilation which is the thing that they really wanted death rides the pale cow. the pale cow right yeah yeah and that was it that was the end of us until they came back knocking on our door again in 2003 and said hey guys we want to put something else out uh we're now associated with Ryko disc would you like to do another retrospective that's what that's the last that we ever had did anything with uh a record company up until getting groove. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll get in uh, the the fascist groove uh, single. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What you 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 guys? The covers you guys would would do were all another tribute to your eclecticism. Am I fucking high, or do I remember you guys covering My Girl at one point? Does that sound like something you might have done? Yeah, we covered My Girl. We yeah. We also did I Heard It Through the Grapevine, but it didn't catch on just as well as My Girl did. How does a band of four very distinct personalities settle on a cover? Like, how do you get four guys to be like, yes, we can all agree on My Girl. We can all agree on we don't need this fascist group well, thing. When you, tour, when you tour the way we did, playing shows every night for three months or two and a half months away from home, you, you do, even if you're four different personalities, you start to get some kind of group think going on. And yeah, sure. Inside sure. jokes and whatever. And to keep things interesting night after night for us, we decided that we would start to learn covers and make them geographically specific to the city. So if we're in San Francisco, we decided to do um, White Rabbit, something like that. And we would practice these songs in the sound check and then they would be the loosest ever versions because we would only do them once or twice and that was it. The next town, we would do something different. We have all, you know, we all kind of swing left and we all get older. Are there moments on that first record, lyrical moments where you kind of, you kind of wish you hadn't phrased something a certain way? I mean, I know it's, you're not the only lyricist, obviously, but like, do you go back at a song like Taking Retards to the Zoo and go, fuck, should we have done that? Yeah, Rodney's sister was the first person that brought up the fact that that could be really offensive, and she studied child psychology, so. Okay, okay. Uh, I think we stopped doing it all the way back then. I love that song. I still do. It's, you're, you're not making fun directly of 
people that have mental deficiencies will say. It's just a fun song. We didn't even know that that was a derogatory term at the time. And let me, I'm not trying to go like woke police on you by any stretch. I'm just wondering as someone who's been at this for a while now, you know, we're, we're, you know, you're, you're four decades a songwriter and things change and context changes, you know, and I, and it's just interesting to watch bands adapt and grow or the bands who like, you know, you know, this is where I'm going to plant my flag and I get to say whatever I want, um, you know, consequences be damned. And I, I'm just, it's interesting to talk to guys who've been at this for a while about how things shift. Well, I, I wrote a song called Sexting, which more than one person brought up to me. The one person brought up to me about how that's so offensive after I played it live in, in Delaware because his own daughter was uh, a victim. I felt really bad. And I didn't mean I never meant that song. I don't know if you know that song, but it's song from the point of view of someone who does get caught. He does, the The song is first person song, but doesn't get caught having sex with a minor, but gets caught in a chat room, like as was mentioned in a news story, which I read based on an actual news story about a TSA agent who got caught by the FBI in a chat room. And I use that as my um, inspiration for the lyrics in the same exact Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, later on, there's another story about vigilantism in Maine, where somebody on a sex offender list was attacked. So I put the two together and made a song, but it, I decided I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, play it. Sometimes I play it if people are asking for it and I feel out the audience and I don't think it's going to be offensive, but I see now how that can be offensive to some people. <laughs> Cause a lot of people think that song, that's a song that I would play in my solo sets that would almost always elicit actual laughter. So that's I thought that's good. But then again, I thought it's not good if if it's at an expense of somebody who might have been a victim. Well, Tiny Town's interesting, and it's still a hallmark of your set because on the one level, there's a part of it where you could argue, well, that song's classist and you're making fun of of people on a lower uh, income scale. But there's also a, a better argument, I think, to be made that, no, we're making fun of really closed minded bigots. And right. I think that's, you know, that's where the song has its power. And that's what how I responded to it. And again, I'm, you know, the epitome of a coastal yeah. elitist. I grew up in New York. Now I live in L.A. Nobody likes I mean, the middle of the country hates my guts. But I um, but I always responded to that song as like, yeah, these guys are are really mad at these people who sometimes carry outsized electoral power. <laughs> well, I, I never thought of it as classist myself. And I think Ryan and I both grew up in a small town, a former steel town. So. It's not like we don't understand the Rust Belt economic right. situation. Right. But I think it was anti-racist. Yet, again, we got both sides of that. Back when Big Lizard was first released, We I remember getting a letter from a, radio, a college radio station manager criticizing us for promoting racism. But I, don't, I think they missed the point of the song. But people can. And we also missed the point of the FU's album, which we took at face value, which was actually satire we later learned. Let's talk gear, man. What do you play on? What do you like to play on? But what do you like to write on? I have a little parlor acoustic guitar, which I got during the pandemic, which I like to write on because it's so easy to carry and it's my size. That's interesting. You write on acoustic. You don't write on electric. I almost always write it on acoustic because it's because then I don't have to plug it in. And like I said, I also wrote on piano or keyboards because I, I had an electric uh, Yamaha electric piano. I don't have it anymore. 
And when I was at my parents' house, they had an acoustic piano, which was great. I grew up with an acoustic piano. Yeah, it's just, it's easier for me to write on acoustic. I mean, I can write with electric in mine. When I'm arranging, I'll go to uh, electric guitar because then that has different tones to get. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you what do you play? What do you what's your electric? What's I, your I like the SGs. That's kind of my Gibson SGs. I like SGs. I've I've also played L six S's only because, and I like them too because I asked I on purpose, and that was a really stupid thing to do. I got angry at a at a stage divers slash security guards for bumping into me too many times and knocking my guitar out of tune. I s- smashed my SG at the end of the show in Michigan and had to get another one the very next day. I thought I could just walk into any uh, music store and buy an affordable SG. And lo and behold, there were no SGs available in a music store in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, but they had these L successes. I mean, they, they had, they didn't, they didn't have any affordable ones that were used that I, that I could buy for my budget at that, back then. So I settled on what I could get was L success. And surprisingly, those are pretty good guitars. Oh, nice. I feel like I, 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 they only ever do gear talk with guys like Steve Vai, and I want more gear talk with, with the Joe Jacks of the world. <laughs> My reasoning for choosing what I choose. And I saw Brian Baker playing at SG at a minor threat show, and I thought he looks really cool playing that. I, it had nothing to do, and I love the sound he got too. I, I wanted to ask about what your, uh, you mentioned multiple siblings. I was wondering what your family was like growing up. Were you guys a, a musical family? My dad played the accordion, so I guess so. My mom played the piano sometimes, hymns and stuff. My dad played Italian music, and he had he had a huge record collection he left behind. So there was music in our household. My sister played trumpet. My youngest brother played guitar, and he plays piano. Was you you mentioned Italian songs, and and your your last name is is Gennaro. Were you were you a Catholic family? Were you churchgoers? Yes, we were half Catholic and half Lutheran because my mom was a Lutheran. And then the two, Lutheranism won over. So that's what we ended up Lutheran. Interesting. Did you do, uh, did you do choir? Yes. I sang in choir and I did handbells. I did handbells and choir, but I did church choir. I also did school choir. Real quick, would, would, it seems like religion is an influence, but it seems like maybe the influence, the good influence got in there, but also the, you know, men speaking for God is problematic. What, what are your thoughts on religion? Um, I I love the Lutheran church that we grew up in. I still go to it, but I certain I have problems with what I've read termed as Christo-fascists. I don't think that people should impose a religion upon anyone. Um, the song Methodist Coloring Book says God hates, God hates, or God hates, God, God, I, I totally disagree with what that says about God, but I think Rodney does too, because Rodney doesn't even believe in a God. It's anti-dogma rather than anti-any particular religion. Uh, you flip the script also, and you go over to a song like um, Born to Love Volcanoes, the, the way, which is one of my favorites that I've, I don't even think I've ever seen you guys play that live, which I think is um, such yeah, a hard I like that song. I play it in my solo set from time Do to time. Do you? Oh, life. cool. Because because he does the lead vocal, but then you come in on the chorus because you mm-hmm. need a hook there, and then you know you you can carry a tune a little bit better than than Rodney can. But that's an interesting song. Well, let's talk about that song for a moment. What 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 inspired that that song, which was such an unusual protest song? Well, I think I think uh, GBS Channel Twelve in our area inspired it. Rodney Rodney came up with the lyrics 
the music came from Dave and I, uh, and with as as with the case of a lot of songs like that, we brought the music in, and Rodney Mur- would skillfully craft words to go along with it. So, what inspired the lyrics? You'll have to ask Rodney. I'm pretty sure it was actually watching this TV show and or watching when PBS starts when they have their uh, what do they call pledge drives. It was interesting to me because I and I still am pro public broadcasting and I give to public broadcasting, but I also love yeah, that di- that dynamic of like, yeah, but there's other things that need our money, too. <laughs> and and and, you know, where does that go? Which is it's one of those rare punk songs that asks questions more than it, you know, declaims. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not, it's not didactic. It's just like, well, hang on. Let's think this through in two and a half minutes. <laughs> And then it also just bangs. I think it's just a fucking great, uh, great punk song. It's a, it's actually a little, the guitar is a little crunchier than it usually is from you uh, mm-hmm. on that one. Um, and and I, we got uh, a violin player to play on it. I want to just tie this and wrap this up in about 10 minutes. I want to tie this, you know, from Denmark to your solo stuff. Is there a big distinction between in your head, between what you're doing now and what you did for the Mookman? To To some extent. Yes, when I started making solo tapes, the Milkman still hadn't released Big Lizard in my backyard, but I wanted to, I just had a, I think I had a need to to express myself outside of the punk rock band and make tapes for my friends. And that's where it started. But then it, 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 it kind of enveloped, it folded itself into the Dead Milkman after a while. And the, the things kind of got blurred towards the end of the Dead Milkman, where I would say, can this be on a solo tape? Or I'll, I'll just see what Dave thinks about it, because he'd be my first sounding board. If if he's OK with it, then we can present it to the other guys and see what they think. But back back in the early days, I knew for sure this was this is not going to be on any Dead Milkman album. With the, with the most recent album, which hasn't come out yet, Rodney actually approached me and said, I want you to write a song as if you were writing it for your solo, for a solo tape. Think about what you would write. Think about that style and write one. And he even gave me the subject matter, just similar, similarly to how he gave me the Washington Scotty Die subject matter. He gave me the idea. He gave me the title. And he said, have at it, see what you come up with. And lo and behold, I didn't think, I didn't know whether it was going to be, whether it's going to fly or not, but he liked it and we put it on the album. How do you handle music business now? Do you have a label? Did you, is it all DIY? What are your thoughts on like your own music in terms of how you want it to be managed or not? I manage my own music myself and take the offers I like as far as how it gets put out there. I've put stuff out in all kinds of different labels. And I kind of like doing that because I just like to have 10. I just like the way that that whole scene works. I like to please people with providing. But the how the Dead Milkman do it, we did a couple albums on our own where we did the pressing and everything. They were the King and Yuma, which we only did on CD. And then we did one Pretty Music for Pretty People, which we did on vinyl on seven inch, 12 inch and on CD. And I was personally ready to do keep doing that. But this Matt teacher from the label Giving Groove approached Dan, our bass player, with an idea and he took it to us and we decided we met with the giving groove people and thought they have a good plan let's try it where they give half the proceeds to a charity a music related charity and half to us and they take an administrative administration fee that they're they're really a studio that's formed a label 
specifically modeled after this charity approach. Are they based in Philly? Yes. They're based in Philly and they are inspired by a book, a, a book a company that did a similar thing with cookbooks. Half, half to charity, half to the author. Two, two follow-up questions. What, uh, what charity are you guys going to uh, give your proceeds, the, the proceeds? The first, the first thing we did was an EP, the, the EP and the single that we released, the Welcome to the End of the World and the cover of the Heaven 17, went to, I believe it's called Girls Rock Philly. The next one is going to a, not just girls, but anybody who's young. It's a company called Rock to the Future, also based in Philly. I'm trying to I'm trying to track some of your outside work. Um, are, are you involved in publishing? Am I am I understanding that right? No. Well, we no. have our own publishing company, but that's for music. But we only that's, do okay. our own stuff. Oh, okay. I understand now. Okay. We All don't. Right, pu- we we've yeah. never like gotten other songwriters to come on board with us. I want to. I, I guess I wanted to ask um, uh, just sort of a general question. What's what new music are you digging? I really like this album by R Ring called War Homes We Rested. And they are a duo, Kelly Deal and Mike Montgomery. Kelly Deal is also in the band The Breeders. It, this doesn't sound much like The Breeders at all, except for her voice. And there's maybe some softer songs on it. Could be Breeders, but it's really not. And I like it. It's There's a Bestial Mouse uh, remix done by Hex Machine that I like called I Am The Spell. And Ronnie turned me on the bestial mouth. I really like this new Jad Fair album. Have you heard it called Happy Hearts? It just came out. It's bright yellow cover with a heart on it. Jad Fair and Samuel Locke Ward, actually. It's a duo. It was really nice talking to you, man. Thank you. This was a real this was a real honor. Thanks for, for okay. uh, uh, entertaining my dumb questions. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. They're good questions. <laughs> hey, you too. Bye. Have a good day. Have a good day, Joe. Thanks so much for listening. Um, again, week week two of this episode comes out next week with uh, the two remaining members, Dan, Drew, and Dean. Uh, please come back and check out the part two. It's really amazing. I want to thank Upwardly Creative Media, LLC, um, for, for doing amazing work in this episode. They did the intro, they edited, and they mastered this episode. If you want to learn more about them, go to upwardlycreative.com. And I want to thank Ot- Otter Castro, who's the other editor who I've been working with, who's been great. And um, both, both people, both, you know, working with both of them has really uh, saved my life in terms of doing this podcast. So please check out what they're doing. Thanks again. Until next time, I bid adieu. Thought and did